Espana by Emmanuel Chabrier with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Osip Gabrilovich, recording that was made in April of 1928. And you'll find out in a moment, if you don't already know, the, the key role Maestro Gabrilovich played in the history of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra as I'm joined here by Paul Ganson, who was uh, a bassoonist, Still is a bassoon. Does you still play the bassoon? Paul? I do. Uh, you get it out every once yes, in a while. Yes, when I want to uh, people. <laughs> and but for uh, thirty-five years, yes, was uh, with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra from yes. Erling to Yervi. Yes. yes, and uh, also was the first president of Save Orchestra Hall. More on that later as well. So uh, welcome back. Nice to have you with well, us. Well, it's as good usual. to be back. Yes. And uh, also here is Lori Lanzen Harris, the author the lead author, uh, an editor, a publisher, uh, Shakespearean criticism. You'd think by now they'd give him a break, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and the author of this wonderful book, Detroit Symphony Orchestra, Grace, Grit, and Glory. Uh, welcome. Nice Thank to have you, you with us. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, this book is 300 pages. It's hardcover. Uh, the first thing I, I thought when I when I got my copy is wow it's heavy and, <laughs> and it's beautifully it uh, uh, printed on yes. on quality paper yes. in color um, and the other thing I, I thought was it must have taken them forever Lori how long did it take you to get this this project together well I began it in early 2014 so it has been two and a half years in terms of all of the work that has gone into it. The actual writing of the book took about a year and a half. And then from that point onward, you're working on all of the ancillary items, the pictures and the permissions and all the different kinds of things that have to do with it. But the actual research began in early 2014. Um, you, it must have felt great when you got that last period down oh, and, yes. and put the, the manuscript into the mail yes. or, or however it was. Well, it was, you, you press a button you press and a send, button it, and send it down. Yeah, yeah. How, how quaint. <laughs> uh, Not like the olden days. No, I, I was struck by uh, the the detail in the book and the fact that you when you you start the story almost before there was a Detroit. That's right. That's right. I was fascinated with the idea of what brought music, classical music, to Detroit. So I wanted to trace that, and as I began to do that, I realized that the focus should clearly be the history of Detroit and the history of the symphony, because their, their fates are so closely intertwined. But just dealing with the city of Detroit, Detroit and its history, how the population just exploded, and then especially the immigrant population that began coming to this country in the, the 1840s, 1850s, 60s, 70s, and with it the demand for classical music that came with those immigrant populations as they came here. And then I learned about the development of the symphony in the 19th century throughout the country, the establishment of a city symphony and how important it was. It was, it was a revered step in the history of a city. So it was, it was just a natural to look at it in that way, these two, the city and its orchestra and their rise and subsequent falls in many ways as well. That's another common theme in the book is how inextricably linked the fates yes. of the city and the orchestra were. Uh, one surprise that may strike some listeners is that uh, the symphony begins 
1914, which was right. the official date for a while, but right. uh, uh, considerably earlier than that. Paul, what happened there? Well, it was simply, again, as Laurie said, a desire on the part of people to have a, a musical institution like a symphony orchestra. And they looked upon it as a resource for people to enjoy and to be enlightened by music, but also as a very good undertaking by the leading citizens. But the question, though, is uh, people thought, or the official date of the beginning of the symphony for a long time was given as 1914. Yes. But in fact, there was an earlier uh, configuration. Yes, yes. It was. And uh, it's very well uh, documented in all of the newspapers of the time, and that's at least seven or eight of them, a couple of them in German. And um, the uh, symphony began, actually, on uh, the first thing, the first instance I got from it, or the first time that I learned of it, I was looking through the records of the of just the symphony or music in the city of Detroit in the ni- in the early 1980s. I'd been asked to write a paper for the Greenwood Press, Symphony Orchestras of the United States. And there was a wonderful essay there by Lynn Marie Matson, And uh, in that, she refers to the beginning of the orchestra. And then I began looking through newspaper, newspapers and uh, I'm not as an experienced or as efficient a researcher as Laurie. But um, the first thing I saw was high hopes for symphony tonight. Just a little squib. And a day before that, though, there was a full newspaper account on the front page of the Detroit Free Press that talked about this undertaking by leading citizens of Detroit. And... It was then that the Detroit Symphony Orchestra was born as the fourth oldest orchestra in the country, which makes sense because Detroit is one of the older, older cities in the United States. So we actually go back to, what, 1887? That's correct. Yes, and and that's the very first concert of that very first group that called itself the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Um. And to give you a little context, uh, dear listener, this is after the New York Philharmonic, St. Louis Symphony, and the Boston Symphony, but uh, Chicago didn't have an orchestra. No, no they did not, no. nor did Cleveland. Or Philadelphia. Philadelphia, exactly. Yeah. So some the of the big, big five. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Detroit was there. They had a few issues and were working it out and, and folded. The orchestra actually folded several times in the yes. course of its history, but... Um, 1910 was when that orchestra went quietly to sleep. Yeah, they did. They went quietly to sleep. And you know what? It's 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 very sad. They the those group of musicians were committed. There were about 35, 37 of them, and they were committed to performing. But they only could perform about four concerts a year. All of them were playing in other ensembles, vaudeville, classical, you know, whatever, all over the city. But they were never able to get enough people to support them financially. They pretty much got by in between $2,500 and $3,500 a year, and they never changed the repertoire that much. They never changed the actual, you know, the, the, the season, the four concerts, all of that, and they were just eclipsed by other organizations. Uh, and I should mention that as, as you go through the history over the course of um, 
the decades, this, a lot of the same things were happening at orchestras around the country. They were. That, uh, although there are obviously certain things that are, are uh, perhaps aggravated in Detroit or that were uh, a little more of this, maybe a little less of that, but a lot of the same issues pretty much follow uh, the orchestra world across the country throughout this period. Uh, but finally, in um, was it 1914 that things yes. came yes. back? Mm-hmm. How, how did it come back? Well, that's a, it's a wonderful story. There is a group of women who were approached by Weston Gales, who became the first conductor of that reconstituted DSO. And it this is from... Um, Miss Frances Sibley, who was a fascinating character in the history of the Detroit Symphony. Weston Gales came to Detroit in December 9, 1913 and came to see me, introduced by Miss Mary Trowbridge, who had met him in Munich. He had been studying conducting in Europe and had been led to come to Detroit by some press publicity in a New York newspaper pointing out the need and opportunity for an orchestra in this city. So he approaches her. She approaches a group of her friends, all of them well-heeled, all of them educated, knowledgeable about classical music. They put together $100 each, and they do a sample concert. And the people of Detroit say, yes, we want this. So Weston Gales is hired and begins to hire musicians, and there is, once again, a Detroit Symphony Orchestra. And it is in this reconstituted Detroit Symphony Orchestra that uh, one of the heroes of the story emerges, and we heard him just a few minutes ago, and that's Asip Gabrilovich. It's true. It's true. Probably the finest musician ever to lead the symphony, certainly the catalyst for making Detroit a place that musicians wanted to come to, to to play in this symphony that was so much a reflection of him and of his own musicianship and of his own hard work to make this ensemble. But in a very fascinating way, he was also an accomplished pianist, and that was how he first became known in the musical world. And the deal he was able to strike in Detroit allowed him to conduct the orchestra 22 weeks a year and also to continue his concertizing as a pianist for all of the time that he was in Detroit. He had a, a, a very clever arrangement with the yeah. orchestra, aside from what you just mentioned, in, in that he would only go for a one-year contract. <laughs> no, I know. So he had leverage at the end of each That's year. It, yes. He did. Yes. Yes. And he did. Paul, he used that leverage early in his, his tenure to, to what? Well, to accomplish the building of Orchestra Hall, uh, because uh, people knew, and Weston Gales had said, they asked, they asked Weston Gales, they said, what does the symphony need? And he said, money. Oh, and a concert hall. There's no suitable home for music in Detroit. So Gabrilovich made the same statement about four years later. And people knew that if they were going to keep Gabrilovich here, he said, if you don't build me a concert hall, I'm not going to return in the autumn. Right. So he, they were playing their final concert of the 1918-1919 season under Gabrilovich's direction, in the Arcadia Ballroom, just down Woodward Avenue, from uh. the present site of Orchestra Hall. On that site stood the old Westminster Presbyterian Church. And the manager, Mr. Harry Cyphers, uh, was off stage. And as Gabrilovich came off, he said, Oh, maestro, listen to the reaction of that Detroit audience. Just look at it. You must now agree to accept the board of directors' offer that you become our next music director. 
Gabrilovich said, well, you know the one condition under which I will return. Build me a concert hall or I won't come back. And he went out for another bow. Audience applauded louder and louder. He came off again. And Harry Cyphers was beaming and he said, Maestro, I'm so happy to tell you that our board has agreed to form a committee <laughs> to look into the possibility of someday building a concert hall. <laughs> and Gabrilovich said, well, I'm afraid that's all too complicated. Simply build me a concert hall or I won't come back. And he went off for another bow and came off. And this time Harry Cyphers was looking at his watch and he was also looking at his pocket diary. And he said, well, maestro, he said, uh, this is Sunday afternoon. Let's meet on Tuesday for lunch so we can continue these very important discussions. And Gabrilovich said, well, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm leaving tonight by train for New York and Philadelphia on a solo recital tour. You may reach me there. Good day. And out he went. <laughs> and if I'm not going on for too long, I'll just close this chat, this <laughs> sub chapter. He was standing in the lobby of his hotel room in Philadelphia speaking with another of the great illusionists, Leopold Stokowski, when the boy from Western Union finally got his name pronounced to an extent, that, oh, Gabrilovich, this is for you. And uh, the money said in what some people might say is a very Western Union style, but I think it's a very Detroit style. It said, money pledged, haul assured. Ah. And uh, Clara Clemens's book, My Husband Gabrilovich, uh, talks about that process and she recounts that they were in such a hurry to get the building underway and to build this concert hall so that they would not lose Gabrilovich that they began demolishing the front doors of the Westminster Presbyterian Church on Woodward Avenue while there was still a wedding going on at the altar <laughs> and uh, so they had to hurry through to accomplish the demolition of the building uh, to get the, it going but not before they were able to consummate the union of the marriage <laughs> and well lucky for the, i wonder what ever happened to that couple I, know. Wouldn't you uh, love to know? I, I i have to say as a researcher i proposed to my wife i said wouldn't it be interesting to find out what happened to that couple married under those conditions yeah. and i was told no it's not yeah. it's not a, not a subject that's <laughs> not a subject into which human alone. beings should inquire <laughs> One thing in the book, and I should mention, I'm speaking with uh, Paul Ganson and Laurie Harris, the authors of uh, Detroit Symphony, um, uh, I want to say Guts, Grits, and Glory. <laughs> Grace. But, uh, Grace. Grace, that's guts, it. Grace, Grit, Grit and Glory. <laughs> Wonderful book that's just out. Um, but uh, one of the things that surprised me when I read it about this period is that there, there was a, a group that was going to pick an architect. And one of the members of that group was another very famous Detroit architect. Albert Kahn. No kidding. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I know. And it's, it's just amazing because there is actually a, a biography that is underway by Michael Hodges of the Detroit News. And I met with him to talk about the book. And he didn't even know that Kahn had been involved in the group that hired Crane to build Orchestra Hall. Now, so uh, it's not that well known. Why? Why not? If Khan was on the committee, Khan wouldn't. Khan didn't do theaters, I guess. He didn't do theaters. He didn't do theaters, and also, I mean, that it is a, a very interesting thing. Obviously, he didn't. He wasn't interested in doing that. That wasn't along the lines of the things that he had done so far. But there's there's also a certain amount of expertise that's required. Yes. 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 So so they ended up with with Crane with C. Howard Crane, who had been known and made his reputation building the 
fabulous movie palaces of the country, especially here in Detroit. The Fox Theater, for example, these absolutely glorious movie palaces with all of the ornate fixings and all of that. And the fact that he also created one incredible recital hall that is considered among the finest in the world, it's a miracle. Nobody, no, it's a mystery. Nobody knows how or why. Nobody is exactly sure what all the combination of things were that made it the, the joy, the glory that it is. Some of the things, though, uh, that are pointed out in the book uh, seem to indicate that it, it wasn't entirely an accident, like, like the asymmetry. Right, exactly. The asymmetry. The also, it is. it was based upon the old shoebox that you see in the Musikverein and the various other German concert halls that were from the same era. Mm-hmm. And yes, and there there is asymmetry, and they knew about the flow of sound out from the orchestra and what in the diffusion of sound and why it was necessary to have the ornate things that were the, the asymmetry, but also the um, the ornate medallions on the wall. It's walls. not just decoration. No, it's not just no. decoration. Uh, and... Uh, this floored me that the, the plaster on one side of the hall yes. is thicker than the other yes. because they had two different crews or more more than two different crews even were hurrying to get the building finished so some did it in some way and some in another and uh as, as Laurie said it was a wonderfully convenient ac- accident well and then so Asep gets his hall mm-hmm. and the orchestra uh, is playing beautifully and the, they're packing him in. Uh, and then in, in, I'm going to jump ahead a, a little bit here. Uh, the, among the, the accomplishments were the first radio broadcast. Yes. Um, and then in 1926, a very special concert took place. Yes. Music by Johann Sebastian Bach. Yes, yes. And that, that was the uh, St. Matthew Passion. It had never been performed in Detroit. It was rarely performed anywhere in the country but New York at the time. And it was an absolutely amazing accomplishment on his part. He had been studying the work for years and said he could study it for the rest of his life. But he also put together an ensemble of 400 people, the double chorus, as well as a chorus uh, that it is antiphonal, but also... Um, when you see the St. Matthew Passion, you realize that the um, congregation of Bach's time sang all of the chorales. They sang it throughout Uh the piece. And because that no longer happened, Gabrilovich also had that choir as well as a children's choir. So he assembled 400 people all together. And they were conducted by Gabrilovich from a harpsichord and the harpsichord was specially made because there were not harpsichords in gen- in the general music population at the time. So he is conducting, and he conducts this masterpiece. And it was a showstopper. It was an incredibly important musical, but also a spiritual um, performance as well. Gabrilovich had written notes to the audience beforehand to prepare them and said, please be aware, this is a somber work. This is a work, there will be no applause. He even asked the ladies to wear somber-colored clothing, etc. And when it was over, it was just, you could hear a pin drop. And um, Clara Clemens said that the, the, the audience just stood there and just quaked in the sense of the grief because the, 
the piece itself is so incredibly moving. Mm. He did this for several years in Detroit. He took it to New York, and it was performed at Carnegie Hall as well, once again reestablishing the the importance of the Detroit Symphony as a national ensemble to be reckoned with by the New York critics and the world in general. Well, it it is an incredible piece of music, mm-hmm. but but the the way the, the event as you've just described it is in the book. It gives you goosebumps, mm-hmm. it's, as do many other um, events in this history. As the depression comes through uh, and and creates all kinds of problems for uh, not just the orchestra but the country. Um, Gabrilovich, uh, his health is also declining, and he decides he's going to have to resign in 1932. But they begged him they do. to stay on. They do. They beg him to stay on, and he says, I need to resign because I know you can't afford me. And the members of the board say, you have got to stay. Please, please stay. So he said, I will stay, but I will only stay if you do not pay me. So he, he played. He, he conducted without without taking any, right without taking and, and and he said this cannot be known. It did leak out, but still, it was a testament to him and to his greatness and his commitment to the organization. But he also became very ill. It was it was he was only fifty six years old, and he conducted his last concert in nineteen thirty five, and he became very ill, and he he died in September of thirty six. Mm. It was just. And it was a huge tragedy on top of the depression, which had caused such I mean, economic collapse throughout Detroit. I mean, and those figures are incredible, too. The city goes from making the big three go from making five point three million to one point three million cars in just two years. So you and you, you see all the names of the board members who have had their fortunes wiped out. And there it gets to the point where the musicians, they can barely be paid and. Is it is it Mrs. Who who stands at the back door with Mrs. Potatoes? Dodge? Mrs. Dodge stands at the at the the back door of Orchestra Hall and gives the potatoes on the way out. It was that dire. Uh, and uh, Horace Dodge is a, is another name that shows up in this this story yes. as one of the heroes. I think yes, he, he was a hero in the building of the hall and in the uh, so to speak beginning of Gabrielovich's era. But sadly, he died in September of uh, 1920. If he had lived, if William H. Murphy had lived beyond 1929, if, if, if. But uh, Detroit has suffered uh, losses, not just of financial support, but losses of key people at very important times. Mm. But they've rallied around and they've come back. And well, they as World War One, excuse me, World War Two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> World War One was was a was another problem. But World <laughs> War, as World War Two comes along again, uh, Detroit is uh, affected by this as the uh, the manufacturing is is converting to war production. Um, there were also problems with the union in 1941. They managed to work it out. Yes. Get as as I followed this. Tell me if I'm wrong here. They, they settled a contract in October of 1941. October mm-hmm. of 1941. Mm-hmm. And what happened in December? I know. I know. It was Pearl Harbor. Right. And, and yes. uh, uh, with gas rationing and yes. various other things. Yes. Uh, 
the orchestra actually went out of business again. It did. It did. And, and another important component to the revenues of the symphony at the time was the Ford Motor Company, the Ford Symphony Hour, at, which had begun during the Depression. But Ford and all of the other major sponsors pulled back. And when they lost the funding from that, they, just the bottom fell out. And that and the, and the threat of gas rationing, the... Um, the management at the time said, we can't afford to do this. We cannot afford to do this. And they went out of business. And Detroit took a little heat from the national yes, press because yes. other orchestras did. found a way to continue. And they Detroit, did. Detroit was the only orchestra that could not find a way. Right, right. And, and uh, they, they were shamed. They were yes, shamed. Yes. There is one quote here that is just unbelievable to me about the hand of Hitler coming out, you know, and, and silencing the music. It really was just so hard to believe. And all because one of the richest cities in the world was so money timid that it would not guarantee the funds for a complete season. Thus the long arm of Hitler and his pals has reached into the citadel of war industry and made its musical leaders knuckle under. But wow. that, was, that was how angry the country was in general at Detroit for giving up at that point. Whether they deserved that shaming... But they were shamed. Well, one of the things that brought them back, and I found this very interesting as well, was the Women's Association sort of kept the flame burning. They did. Yes. What an incredible organization. That's right. That's right. And they just, they just, first you have Reichhold coming in for a very brief period of time. Oh, Reichhold. That's another name. Wasn't that, that that was astonishing to me. I knew nothing about that. Mention, who is this fellow? Henry Reichold was a chemist. He had Reichold Chemical Factory, which was he was involved in paint solvents that were used by the automotive world. And he was enormously wealthy, and he was also an amateur musician. And he had paid for certain uh, ensembles to continue to play during 1943. And then he basically brought back the DSO as DSO Inc. It was, it was a Reichold. He was, he owned it as you would own a business. Huh. And, but, but he, he had his, his some very specific ideas. He, he was, he, he, as I read it in the book, he's a little bit like P.T. Barnum. Yes, mm-hmm. very much. Um, very much. He, he said, I want to have the largest symphony in the world. So he, he would have, you know, the, he wanted to bring it up to about 110 musicians. And he would have weekly in the programs, he would say, Boston's at this level, New York's at this level, Detroit is at this level. He also sponsored a symphony contest. And uh, the prize was enormous. It was $25,000. And this is in 1945. And just as comparison, I noted that the Pulitzer Prize in Music is a $10,000 award. So just imagine. Time, yeah. No, now, now the Pulitzer is $10,000. Wow. Well, I know. And, and twenty five grand and forty five is yes, a lot yes. more than twenty five. dollars But the parameters, one of the parameters was that um, it had to be 30 minutes or less. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it tells you a little bit about his musical tastes. He, uh, George Zell stole yes, our concertmaster yes, in yes, that period. And, yes. and that became a notorious um, item of news as well. And it was covered in all of the newspapers across the country who just found it so um, incredible that you would have this slugfest going on between members of a well, symphony. And, 
And speaking of the slugfest, as we get to the end of the 1940s, Reichold fires the orchestra? He does. At he fires least the once. orchestra. At least once. Yes. Well, also, <laughs> at it, least, yeah, what, it, what happened there? George, well, Georges Michel is the principal a cellist at that time, and he fires him. He chases him across the stage. I just tried to imagine this poor man being chased across the stage with his cello. Yes, he does. He fires them. He also tells them they cannot speak to the press. There was a writer for, I believe, the Detroit Tribune at the time who was finding fault with, with Karl Kruger and the playing of the, of the symphony and all of that, and Reichold, and he said, if you speak to this man... I will, you know, I'll make sure that you get fired. And so they immediately went to the, um, to the music critic and said, listen to what's going on. He put it on the front page of the paper the next day and said, yeah, wow. listen to this and it's a doozy, folks. Um, we're talking about a new book that is just out from the Wayne State University Press, Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Uh, did I get it right? Grace, Grit, and Glory. Yes. And uh, Laurie Harris is the author of the book. With uh, an assist from Paul Ganson, uh, would have to be. And you know, it, it, as the way as I look at the clock, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. But I I think we need to get to some of the other uh, key moments in the history before we run out of time. Uh, the orchestra comes back again. Yes. In the 1950s, yes. and that brings us to another hero in the history, and that's Paul Paul Perret. Yes, another and a, and a hero in so many ways. He was he was a war hero in both World War One and World War Two, and he was an incredible musician and a great find, a great catch for the DSO at the time. Uh, there was a very important move monetarily that happened at the time as well. John B. Ford, who is from the Salt Fords as opposed to the Henry Ford family. Not the family. car people. Not yeah. the car people, the Wyandotte chemical people. And he, based on the United Foundations model, came up with what was called the Ford plan, the Detroit plan. And he approached all of the major companies in the city and said, I want $10,000 from each of you, and I want the president of each of your companies to serve on the board of this symphony that we are bringing back. So it was an incredible thing, and it worked. It worked. And what really struck me was that as Paul Perret is coming to Detroit, you have these programs announcing this, mus- this wonderful musician and this, this, this reborn symphony. And each of these companies are writing about their commitment to Detroit, why music is important in Detroit, why it's important to support your symphony, and and also talking about their commitment to their own employees and seeing it all within that context. Then you have Paul Perret coming, and he is a consummate musician, and he brings the symphony to its second golden age. And that is, you can hear that whenever you want to, because the Mercury record label signed a contract with Perret and the DSO. They made 70 recordings, and many of these recordings are still considered among the finest of those individual pieces. Before we uh, go on with with the music aspect of the story, uh, you mentioned John Ford, and uh, the the whole business of the management and the board Mm -hmm. and the fundraising part Mm -hmm. of the operation is is an interesting aspect of the story. Uh, and it's pointed out, and again, this is not just true of Detroit, it's true of orchestras across the country. If you sell out 
you're still not going to make expenses. You need to you need to come up with I another know. what fifty percent or so. Yeah, exactly yeah. from donors. Yes, from other sources. Yes. So the the role of philanthropists and and others is is critical to it's the story. Always part of the story. And of course, philanthropists get their money based on how the the economy is going. Mm-hmm. And if the economy is great, there's more available. And if it's not, it's a problem. Uh, but John Ford, as as you point out in the book. When he was getting this whole coalition together, the first group he went to was the union. Was the union? Yes, what exactly. A, what a brilliant! What a move. brilliant move! I know, I know. And they jumped on mm-hmm. on board, didn't they? They yes, sure did. Yes. They sure did. And they were happy to be seen as part of that coalition, as opposed to being in opposition to it. And I think it was a brilliant move. Another thing that that struck, and I'm ta- I'm doing too much talking here. Uh, not at all. The, not at the, all. The, uh, Throughout the history, from from the early days up to the present day, the orchestra frequently went to Carnegie Hall. Yes, they did. And and their track record in Carnegie seems to be uh, very high. I and, know. And, and it's so important. It's so important that you establish yourself as a national presence by playing in Carnegie Hall and being reviewed by the major critics, the New York Times critics, always. Uh, but also other critics as well. And they are the major names in music criticism. And they're listening and they're saying, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing this. And it is all the way up to the present day. It is incredibly important that that Carnegie Hall presence is maintained so that the credibility of the orchestra as an entity is known nationally. But there, there's one great review after another from these Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. gigs. And, and Paul, you were uh, on many of those mm-hmm. concerts. Yes. Was the Detroit Symphony in Carnegie Hall different from the Detroit Symphony in Orchestra Hall? Uh, yes, but modesty uh, forbids <laughs> that I say uh, where, you know. Uh, but uh, no, uh, the thing is that, of course, that for many of those concerts in Carnegie Hall, uh, after Gabrilovich, uh, because the orchestra left Orchestra Hall in 1939. And from then until 1990, when the orchestra moved back, uh, Orchestra Hall was our Carnegie Hall in Detroit, just as the pavilion at Meadowbrook in the summer was the best outdoor music uh, pavilion in the United States. And so we were blessed at some point, in some ways, by a wonderful space in which to make music and of is equal, if not more importance, a wonderful space for people to listen to music. Mm. Because that's the thing that Detroit, we all, we, we tend to say, well, they're all very quiet now until they applaud. And we, we don't think enough of how important those listening ears are and those hearts that were moved. The the book is uh, available. You can find it. Uh, you can find it on our website if you want to make a donation. But you can also find it at, at wherever you find good books. Right, as right, they say. right. Independent bookstores. You can get it on Amazon. You can also buy it directly from Wayne State University Press. Go online, and you can find it there as well. There's there's so much. I'm going to have to skip past here. There there was an amazing story about uh, Paré's last concert. Oh. I know. Where, uh, as the, as the crowd is on their feet at the end of it, the concertmaster Mishmishkov leads Old Lang Syne. I know, and I know. 
My goodness, so I much. Know. And then uh, Antal Dorati. Antal Dorati, I knew. What, what a <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a uh, what an era that was. It yes. was, yes. and he was, and he was such a consummate showman. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, and I remember I moved back to Detroit in 1977 to begin my publishing career, and there he was on billboards, gazing down off of the freeways, and the first night of the Beethoven Festival, the very first festival devoted to a single uh, composer, and he was the one who brought that about. They were scalping tickets in front of Ford Auditorium, and down the street were the Pistons, and they weren't scalping yeah. tickets for the Pistons, so all the people well, were in I, line to see the symphony. I don't know that they ever scalped tickets for the Pistons. Oh. Well, I shouldn't say that. that <laughs> maybe, well, maybe there were a couple of years in there, but but yeah, that that is something in yeah. in this in this blue-collar factory town. Yes. Uh, one thing that struck me was a quote of Dorati's because he had been hired to make the orchestra world class. That right. was that was that term right. started getting yes, bandied, bandied about. around. Yes, and uh, you point out that Dorati pretty much said that the orchestra was already, already. a fine yes. orchestra, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. said that the point was to make the performers feel they were artist musicians yes. rather than musician workers. Yes. Yes, yes. He he brought a wonderful spirit of artistic devotion to each member of the orchestra. And it was truly uh, another golden age, if you will, mm-hmm. because we uh, existed in a wonderful ensemble. And that's really the essence of what an orchestra is. It's an ensemble. It's nothing if it's not together in attack, tone, intonation, everything. And uh, when Dorati was on the podium, we had a renewed uh, and very deep sense of attention. And it's hard to vary from that. Well, and the European tour was a triumph. A huge success. He also brought back recording because Sixton Early yeah. only, I think, made about... 15 recordings in his entire career and none in Detroit. That's but here's Dorati and Dorati, the 1812 Overture, and people have to remember too that people used to buy records all the time. Yeah. It was a huge bestseller. And he also, the Copeland and several other, and, and a Copeland Festival, Bartok, Miraculous Mandarin, these were award-winning recordings and brought the DSO again to national attention because oh, of their excellence. You could say international attention because you know you could go to into record stores back when they had record stores anywhere in the world and you would find the Detroit the Symphony Detroit Orchestra, Symphony. Yeah. whether it was Pere or Dorati. Right. The recording was very important. Right. Um, but it was expensive. And this money thing is, is a constant and recurring issue. It's true. And, and he leaves because he can't get the money that he wants. The, the 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 symphony was in deep debt after the European tour. And it's such a shame because he said, look it, you know, I, I can't afford to stay here unless there is a commitment of the money. And so he leaves and Herbie comes. Well, this is this is a shame. We should do a part two because sure, we haven't not? gotten to Naomi Yervi yes. and Leonard Slatkin. Um, the, what I'm left with after after reading this book is uh, that there's a lot of great things going on with the orchestra that that the struggle continues yes um, I I feel 
and and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think where the orchestra is now, having gone through the crucible of all these these um, uh, labor issues and artistic issues mm-hmm. and financial issues, I think the orchestra is in a pretty good place. Yes, and that's it, it's where it's been. And many times, not many times, but a few times before. And it's what it's doing is drawing upon its traditions to do recordings and to do recordings that will match those that were done by Gabrilovich, Karl Kruger, Pere, Durati, and then, of course, Naimi Yervi and Leonard Slatkin. And the fact that, yes, the orchestra did in 1922 give the world's first broadcast of a program of symphonic music and on now, the radio and now they're they're on the internet they're on the they're on the internet we are one of two orchestras which can be reached by anyone on the planet if they would make the connection through the internet so again it is doing something extraordinary and it only needs to be recognized for what it is doing because we can look back and say, oh, yeah, shortly before the orchestra went out of business, they did this and this and this. And then, and then, but it's the same thing, and it's doing it better and better every time. And I'm not suggesting we should say, oh, let's go out of business so we can start again yeah, and do let's it not, better. Yeah, let's let's no. not do that. And the uh, I, I have to applaud you on the frankness of the... Uh, the depictions of the labor disputes and such, particularly the, this this last strike, which was uh, sort of a cataclysm. But uh, as it ended up, I think it, it ended up putting both the musicians and the management and the board in a, and Detroit, for that matter, in a better place. Um, Thank you. The book is the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, Grace, Grit, and Glory. I've been speaking with uh, the author, Laurie Lanson-Harris and Paul Ganson. And before we wrap up this segment, uh, Laurie, I'd like you to read the, the finale to the book. All right, I will. The future of the DSO and of the city it calls home will be shaped by how they face the continued challenges of the ever-changing economic and social landscape of the modern era. Guided as they have been since the days of Father Gabriel Richard by an inextinguishable spirit and a grittiness native to the city, they are both determined to survive, to adapt, to change, to hope, to rise from the ashes and be renewed. According to the legend of the Firebird, which inspired Stravinsky's great modernist work and celebrates the ever-renewing spirit of art, the feathers of the legendary phoenix provide beauty and protection as it rises to live again. So, too, are the orchestra and the city, entwined in a cycle of hope and renewal and the will to survive and to thrive together. Laurie Harris and Paul Ganson, thank you so much for your work and for your time. Thank you very much.